الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وربك على كل شيء حفيظ صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة أما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for having guided us, granting us iman, for sustaining us and bestowing his favors upon us. And we send peace and blessings upon Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and upon his family and his progeny and his wives and all those that followed them in their ways. <coughs> this week, inshallah, we'll continue with Al-Hafil. So this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is Al-Hafil. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَرَبُّكَ عَلَىٰ كُلِّ شَيْءٍ حَفِيلٍ that your Lord is hafid over everything. He's hafid over everything. So what is hafid? Hafid is the preserver, the one who preserves everything or who safeguards. So for example, a book is called hafid. Why? Because it safeguards knowledge and action. Right? Things are not lost when they are written down. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hafid. Hafid comes from the word hifd. Which a derivative of hifd is what? Hafid. So that's what we call like a hafid al-Qur'an. Why? Because they have not memorized the Qur'an, but they have preserved the Qur'an. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He says, when He declares that He is the one who will safeguard the Qur'an, how does He safeguard the Qur'an? He safeguards it by putting in this ummah those who memorize the Qur'an to such a level that they can, they know, they can, call, they can pull out the slightest vowel mistake an individual might make another individual might make right so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that preserves but th- this is why a person is called the hafid of Quran because he has preserved the Quran now Imam Uzali rahimullah he says that the meaning of preservation so to understand that Allah ta'ala is the preserver the all preserver we have to first understand what preservation is and preservation can be understood in two ways meaning like how, is Allah, how, how do we understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being the all-preserver? This is from two things. One is that He perpetuates the existence of the existing things and He sustains them. So He allows them to exist and He keeps them going in their existence. Right? And number two is that He safeguards, he safeguards those things which are opposite to each other. So those things which are inimical to each other, those things which oppose one another in their inherent nature. He safeguards them from each other. And this is the more evident of this is the more evident meaning of what is meant by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being hafid. So he gives examples then for that uh, fire and water. They are complete opposites of one another. When the two are placed together, they will always be working to overpower one or the other. So either water overpowers fire and it puts the fire out, or fire begins to overpower water and what turns it into steam. It evaporates. Right? It goes away, it turns into steam and air. So they're always working against each other. Similarly, other opposites he mentions are wet and dry, uh, cold and heat, right? All of these things are opposite to each other. However, all of these things are needed for living things. So although these two creations of Allah are working against each other when they are put together, living things need all of these created things. So what? Humankind, animals... Plants, trees, these things, what they need heat and cold. They need wet and dry, right? Uh, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Him being hafid is that He creates this balance between, the, between these two opposites and allows them to exist together and at the same time. Although they are opposites and they're constantly working against each other, but our bodies, for example, we have a level of heat and we have a level of cold at the same time, right? We have dry, we have dry components and we have moist components. So what moisture, it helps with our skin, right? It helps with our joints and whatnot. But too much moisture can also cause harm. And what we also need, dryness. The bones remain dry because that's what allows them to stay hard and firm. So our bodies have this cold and dry, uh, sorry, this uh, moistness, this wetness and dryness, this heat and cold going on all at the same time. And it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has safeguarded these things from overpowering each other, allowing them to exist at the same time in relatively the same place. So all of these 
elements that are needed with our, you know, for, for our skin, for the body, our bodies, the bodies of animals, plants, and all the rest of composition. They need these different components that are opposite to each other. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Imam Uzzali rahimullah mentions that he reinforces one when it becomes overpowered. So he creates this balance. But in the event that one of them does overpower, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then brings balance. He reinforces the thing that's getting overpowered. So how does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do this? He doesn't simply reinforce by creating more of a thing. But he reinforces it by allowing what's there to subsist, to exist, to continue to go on. He what? What did we mention? The two ways of preservation are understood. How? Through safeguarding from each other and by perpetuating existence. So this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does. That in our bodies there is, sometimes we have sickness, right? So Allah ta'ala has also created sickness. And He's created sickness. When sickness happens, what is sickness? It's kind of, it's the imbalance in our body of something, right? So when that imbalance happens, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will, he will uh, perpetuate what is needed to, in order to bring that balance back and He will reinforce it to bring the balance back into our bodies to bring us the cure, to allow us to be healthy again. Now, <clears throat> Imam Uzzali rahmullah, he also mentions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He preserves mankind from annihilation. So how does He preserve mankind from annihilation? Now, we're speaking about the different methods He's trying to bring to light how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hafiz. How does He safeguard us? How does He protect us? So he allows, uh, he protects us from annihilation, how? That outside dangers exist, right? So all of these components we talked about, generally these are dealing with the inward, okay? However, outward, there's outward dangers as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the, the senses and the limbs in order to, for it to be a protection for us, in order to safeguard us. So this is Darul Asbab, right? This is the, the world of means. Allah ta'ala doesn't need any means, but He uses means for our, our benefit, to make things easier for us. So He's given us the senses, the eyes, right, sight and hearing, to be able to pick up when danger is coming near us. Then He's given us arms, limbs, hands, in order to repel the danger that might, that if we couldn't get away, if our senses couldn't perceive it fast enough, and the danger comes in front of us, then He's given us our arms in order to repel that danger, right? So what, like a ball gets thrown and somebody throws it, they don't, do it, they don't throw it very well. It's coming to hit you, what happens? You put your hand up to block it, right, to stop it. Furthermore, Allah Ta'ala has given us legs so that in the, in the situation where we can't repel something with our hands, we can turn and run. We can move ourselves, we can get away, we are mobile, we can get away from the, the different dangers that are around us. He then goes in and says, or the other ulama, they mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not only has He preserved us in this matter, but He is hafid. Now hafid, we've mentioned so many times before that this form of the word is a what? Balil form. So like alim, khabir, kabir, these are all balil forms, meaning they are exaggerated forms of the word. So Allah ta'ala is the one who preserves everything, the all-preserver. Now we think about us as individuals and groups, right? We can think about the planets. We think of these large bodies. But in reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's preservation is of something more than that. Because what? Every single atom, every atom has life, right? Every atom that's in the heavens and in the earth, it has some type of life. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is preserving all of these things as well. It is mentioned that, uh, that what, even if you look at different plants and herbs, they're totally defenseless, right? I mean, what? You can just trample over them. Like a dog can trample over them, right? But even those things have a defense mechanism. What is it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created a husk. He has created that outer, uh, thicker surface of these different herbs to protect it from outside dangers. So those, that outer husk, it protects it from something that might bring harm to it. You know, so like for example, even think of like a banana. It has an outer husk. Now, it's not very strong compared to us. We can break it. An animal can come and break it. But that, that fruit is meant to be eaten by people, by animals. But what does it get protected from? What is that skin protected from? The skin protects it from bugs, insects, other types of uh, germs and viruses that might afflict it. So those are, Allah Ta'ala creates that, that outer layer of skin to protect it. And in the event that that's not there, sometimes you'll find something where the skin is not so thick, but then you'll find thorns with it. 
So the thorns then protect it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates all of these things. And then Imam Muzayyad he mentions that there's a, tradition, there's a narration from Rasulullah to the extent that he says that every single drop of water, even that is sustained. That every single drop of water has an angel with it. Every drop of water has an angel with it protecting it from being overpowered by the heat. So he gives the example that if you take a glass of water and you dip your finger into it, and when you turn your hand, your finger over, you'll see the drop, it's just a small drop. And the reality is that it should fall. It should hit the ground, it should fall. Once it hits the ground, it's going to evaporate. But what happens? It stays with you. It stays on your finger until it gathers enough water, is, enough water is joined to it so that evaporation becomes more difficult for it. One drop can evaporate very easily. But multiple drops together, a whole bucket of water is what? It's just millions and billions and trillions of drops, right? It's not as easy for when all of those are brought together, it's not as easy for it to evaporate after that. So he brings this hadith saying that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put an angel with every single drop of water in order to preserve the water also. This is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hafid, that even the water he's preserving it. Because if he didn't preserve it, not that he needs the angels to do so, but if he didn't preserve it, then what? It would just evaporate. It would become overpowered. Furthermore, he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put in us the instincts of survival. So the instincts of survival Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us and placed this inside of us. Um, he ends off saying that there's different things that... So what this whole discussion is about what? Preservation. That Allah ta'ala is preserving us. However, there's things in the discussion are, is discussions of danger. So there are those types of foods and drink which would be poison for our bodies, which would car- cause harm to our bodies. So Allah Ta'ala has given us the instincts of survival and He's also allowed us the sense and the ability to perceive what, is, what it is that causes us harm. And then to refrain from those things that cause us harm. So there's food that will ha- harm us, food that might sustain us, nourish us, be a source of nutrients for us. Those foods can get spoiled, right? They get old, they get moldy. Then if we eat it, it's going to harm us, right? That causes harm to our bodies. Similarly, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, created, has also created things that would cause harm to us spiritually, cause harm to our hearts. And so he mentions things like gambling, things like fornicating, things like gossip, arrogance, envy. These are all poisons and harms for our soul. So Allah ta'ala has created the means for us to stay away from it, to protect ourselves from those things. And we have to do our part in staying away from those things as well. Those things that cause our bodies physical harm and those things that would cause us spiritual harm. We might think like gambling, for example, it's not gonna, it might not cause us physical harm. Maybe down the road, it will indirectly cause us physical harm. But because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has prohibited it, it is a spiritual harm for us. And it will darken the heart. It will bring rust to the heart. And that is where our iman then comes into danger. That our iman is in danger, I think we mentioned it before too, that uh, you know, the ulama mentioned the causes for people turning away from Islam. The causes for us, for Muslims, to apostate, for example, to leave Islam. Why? It's not, it's not typically any one thing. It's not any one action that we do that all of a sudden, you know, we, we engage in this action and we say, oh, you know, I don't want to be Muslim anymore. No, it's usually the buildup of a whole lot of things that we might have thought it to be a big deal, but we allowed ourselves to engage in it anyway. Or it could also be the buildup of a whole lot of things that we deemed insignificant. Right? How many times we'll discuss something and we'll say, no, you know, this is an Islam, we're not supposed to do this. Islam doesn't allow this, rather it should be done this way. And how many times have we, we might have said ourselves or somebody says to us, well, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if you do this one action? Right? Something insignificant. The question that needs to be posed back to those individuals or to ourselves is what, what is it that we consider a big deal? You know, what is it that we consider a big deal? So for example, uh, I know an individual that they don't, right, they don't dress properly, they don't make their salah, they don't read Quran, they, don't, they, they listen to everything and anything, they watch whatever, you know. They do all the things that they're not really supposed to be doing <laughs> And they don't really do all the things that they should be doing. And then when you discuss 
like halal food with them. Like this is an example I'm giving because this is an, ex- uh, an actual experience that I had. This individual will say, well, you know, I don't have any vices, so I'll let this be my one vice of not eating halal food. Like you're not praying, <laughs> you're not giving sadaqah, you're not fasting, you're not doing any of these things that you should be doing and you're saying, I don't have any vices. So not eating halal, like that's just one vice I'll allow myself to engage in. It's a big problem, right? That we deem these things to be insignificant. Deem these things to be insignificant. And so the buildup of these things can eventually, that's what brings rust to our hearts. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kallabal rana ala qulubihim. That nay, rather, it was the rust on their hearts, ma kanu yaksibun, that was a result of what they earned. Meaning the actions that we engaged in brought this rust to our hearts, and then those are the people who became ungrateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Those are the people who then turned away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So we have to safeguard ourselves from the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said are not allowed. We shouldn't deem any of these actions to be insignificant. Because like we mentioned last week, that there isn't any one action we can do that we should say, I've done this one action, now I'm guaranteed Jannah. There's nothing else I need to do. I'm, I've sufficed. When the Prophet was around, he gave that glad tiding to some of the Sahaba. Why? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave that to glad tiding to Rasulullah However, what happened? You know, like Sayyidina Uthman anhu, when Rasulullah was trying to raise funds for a particular uh, uh, battle expedition, he said, who can contribute? So Uthman raises his hand and he says, you know, I'll, I'll contribute whatever, like a hundred camels or something. He says, okay, who, who can contribute anything else? He raises his hand again. He says, I'll, another 200. Okay, who can contribute? He, again, he raises his hand. Okay, I'll give like 400 this time. By the end, he'd given like 900 camels, uh, fully armed to the teeth. He had given wealth. He'd given wep- like sponsored uh, weapons, everything, right? He gave literally what would be millions and millions. And so Rasulullah says that uh, this is sufficient for Uthman, meaning there is nothing more that he needs to do, Allah Ta'ala will give him Jannah. That this, what he has done today, has been sufficient for him to gain Jannah. However, did he stop? Did he stop, you know, seeking good deeds? Did he stop performing good deeds? No. The Sahaba, they were such people that Rasulullah by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them the glad tiding of Jannah, that you have done enough now, there's nothing else you need to do and you'll get Jannah. However, they continue to strive. But what's our state? We don't have that glad tiding and we still think, man, I did such a great thing. I think I'm, you know, I'm set now. Everything else is insignificant. I don't need to do anymore. It's not a big deal. <laughs> right? This is the difference between us and between the companions of Rasulullah And so, when we allow these things to build up on our, on our hearts, then it's, it's like a slippery slope, right? You start going down a particular path. And this is what Imam Muzali says that we have to protect ourselves from. So we have to pre- protect our limbs and our heart. So we protect our bodies from those things which are harmful to us, and we protect our heart from those things which are harmful to us. And then he says that whoever preserves his life of faith from the assault of anger and the enticement of desire, self-deception and delusion of Satan. This is the one who, can, who, who we can say has preserved himself. And obviously we're not preserving ourselves, right? We're not preserving ourselves, but we're trying to do our part. Allah Ta'ala is the one that preserves us. So we control our anger, we control ourselves from engaging in our uh, lower desires, our base desires, from deceiving ourselves, deceiving people from the delusions of the devil. And then he says that what the middle ground has to be taken. This is what Islam is, constantly the balance, right? The balance. So what? He says that generosity is the middle ground between extravagance and miserliness. So we might, ex- we might spend the wealth that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us. And that's fine, right? We spend that wealth. You know, some of the Sahaba, Abu Dhar al-Ghifari radiallahu anhu, he was very ascetic, right? Meaning he was a zahid. He didn't, he didn't want wealth and he didn't, whatever wealth came to him, he didn't spend it. He just gave it all away. Like he lived a very ascetic lifestyle. And he used to rebuke the Sahaba later on. The rest of the companions, like Uthman radiallahu anhu, he used to rebuke him that why are you, you know, you're, you're allowing these people to spend extravagantly. It was extravagant according to Abu Dhar al-Ghifari but it wasn't extravagance to the point that was blameworthy of this, you know, that, that was blameworthy. So you're allowed, right? So for example, even later on the Tabi'in, Imam Abu Hanifa rahimullah, he would, he would wear a new, uh, he'd wear a, new, a brand new clothing every single day. 
Every day he'd wear brand new clothing. We think, man, that's extravagance, isn't it? And his clothing was worth like 400 dirhams or something like that, 400 gold coins, right? That's extravagance. But it's not extravagance. Why was it not extravagance? Because although he would buy and wear a new cloth, new garment every day, the previous days he would give out his sadaqah. So Imam Ghazali says that what generosity is the balance between miserliness and extravagance. So go and spend and have, you know, spend your wealth, wear nice clothes, right? But we shouldn't, we shouldn't amass so much of it that it becomes, our extravagance becomes miserliness. We have to give out, we have to be generous, give sadaqah, right? And don't just give our clothes away because they're in a raggedy condition that, oh, I can't wear this anymore, it's, so, it's such, in such horrible condition. Give it out when it's in, still in good condition. That condition that we would want to wear it in. You know, so I mean like, we'll, we might buy a whole bunch of shirts or sweaters or whatever, and we have so many of them. Okay, so if you can go especially the entire year without wearing it, give it away, <laughs> okay? Because you don't need it. The whole, every, all four seasons have passed and you didn't need it. So give it away. You didn't wear it, give it away. You know, you still have other clothes and materials and whatever to use. And that's why you didn't wear, for example, a particular sweater because you had others in its place. So it's fine. Give it away while it's still in, still a good, while it's still in a good condition. And a person will feel good about wearing it too. This is how we bring balance between miserliness and extravagance. Similarly, he says that virtue only brings about balance. Virtue, virtuous deeds can only be balance. This is why, you know, it's not when we... <clears throat> people will say, don't become too religious. Right? Don't become too religious. What does that mean? Why? Why don't you want me to become too religious? Because you're going to become extreme. Extremism is the result of uh, a not, not having a sound understanding of the religion. Because if you say, no, if you become too religious, that's extremism, then what does that mean? Who is the most religious person ever? It was the Prophet So what, does that mean he was extreme? He wasn't. He was the perfect balance, the perfect middle ground. If he was extreme, then what? He couldn't have been an example for us. And he's an example for us. So the more religious a person becomes, the more balanced they will become. The more balanced they should become. And if they don't become balanced, then there's not a, you don't, there's not a proper understanding. There's something's missing here. That doesn't mean we remove our religiosity. That means that we seek the proper understanding. And then we become balanced. Right? That's why a Muslim who has a proper understanding of deen, proper understanding can never go into extremism. And... Right, uh, uh, an, an, well, I guess Muslim or non-Muslim, because Muslims also have animosity against the deen, right? But proper sound and proper sound understanding of the deen will not lead you towards extremism, nor will it lead you towards animosity, right? So even if a person doesn't want to become Muslim or doesn't want to be religious, if they are Muslim, if they have a good understanding of deen, they won't perceive it to be, they won't look down on on deen, right? So maybe that's not they're not a very religious person. But if they have a good understanding, they should at least be able to look at the deen and say, no, this is a good thing, right? Even though I'm not engaging in it, okay, it's a good thing though. It's my shortcoming, whatever, right? This would be a proper sound understanding. This would be the balance. The balance is not, you know, there's individuals that have said to me uh, that, you know, I'm very balanced, speaking about themselves. I'm very balanced, right? So there was like three groups of people sitting in this one gathering, three groups of people. One were like, you know, more religious people, there were some atheists also, and then there was this third group, okay? So this third group, they said, you know, we're very religious, we're very balanced. This person is extreme, this person is extreme. Why? Because these people are too religious and these people are too anti-religious. But we're balanced. Now, if you look at the actions of those individuals calling themselves balanced, they don't pray, they drink, they go clubbing. <laughs> like, what is it that you're doing? What is your perception of balance? I believe in Allah and His Messenger, but I don't do anything that they command and I do everything they have prohibited. That's not balance. Right? You know, my father used to say, like, that type of thinking is what is the same as you saying that I'm going to stick my one foot in a bucket of boiling water and stick one foot in a bucket of ice and say, well, I should be balanced now. I should be comfortable because I have put, one, I've put my body in two extremes at the same time. Now there's balance. So that doesn't work, <laughs> right? It has to be a true balance. And a true proper understanding will bring about that balance. Any questions? Yeah, no, no. So the next name is Al-Muqeet. Uh, this is pretty simple. Imam Ghazali keeps this pretty short. He says that, 
uh, it means the nourisher. Now it's very similar to al-razzaq. So razzaq was the sustainer, but al-muqit is the nourisher. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ مُقِيتًا That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has power over everything. So muqit here means, it can mean different things. Some of the ulama have said here it means knowledge. Some have said it means power. Some have said it means the nourisher. But how is it different than uh, al-razzaq? That al-razzaq is pertaining to the one who sustains, who provides sustenance and provisions as a means of food. Whereas muqit is more than that. So you can say razzaq is a more general understanding of nourishment and muqit is a more specific understanding, a more detailed understanding. Imam Ghazali rahimullah, he mentions that the one who creates the different nutriments, right? Those are like the different nutrients and whatnot that come to the body. Those things that, that are a form of sustenance for us. And the one who delivers them to the bodies as food and to the hearts as knowledge. That is al-muqit. So the one who takes what's around us and gives it, delivers it to our bodies, for, delivers it to us for our bodies as food and to our hearts as knowledge. Because the sustenance of the heart is knowledge. So it's similar to razak, but there's a more specific understanding here. Uh, <clears throat> and in the verse recited, وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ مُقِيتًا This is, uh, he says that this is not, to say that this was to mean, this means power or knowledge, is not entirely accurate, because those are, the, if, you, if you translate it to mean power, it means only power. And if you translate it to mean uh, knowledge, it means only knowledge. But if you take it to mean nourisher, then it combines knowledge and power. Why? Because you have to have the power in order to sustain somebody, to be able to sustain them, and you have to have the knowledge to know what they need, what sustenance they need, or what would be sustenance for them. So that's why it's, it's more of a combination of, of power and knowledge. Imam Qushayri, rahimullah, he says that there's different levels of sustenance. He says that sustenance, there's sustenance through food and water, and that is for the humans and animals. And then he says there's sustenance through making the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, through praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is for the angels. That the angels, they, do they eat and all that stuff? They don't need to eat, right? So they make the dhikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sustains them. And then he says sustenance through knowledge and rationalization, and that is the realm of the souls. The soul is sustained through knowledge and through rationale. <clears throat> that was basically it. He says that um, the counsel, yeah, the counsel that he gives is actually, he doesn't even put a counsel in here. He kind of just describes the difference between uh, muqit and, and nourisher and whatnot. He's saying that they're not synonyms for each other. Right? Rasulullah now he was the, a prophet, right? So he used to, when the Sahaba tried to not compete with him, but he used to fast sometimes without breaking his fast. So the night would come and he wouldn't break his fast. And the Sahaba tried to do that also. He told them, don't, don't compete with me in this because my Rabb, he sustains me. He sustains me. When the Muslims went out for the battle of Badr, then uh, they, were, they didn't have very many conveyances. So they were sharing, right? They had like 70 camels and they were sharing them. So Rasulullah pairs the Sahaba up, right, in groups two, three, four. But he puts himself with Ali Radilanu and another companion, I can't remember which one. He puts himself with Ali Radilanu and another. And when it was their turn to ride the camel, they would say, Ya Rasulullah, why don't you ride instead? Because out of adab, out of etiquette, you know, you ride instead. You're the, you're the Nabi after all. So he says, no, I am also in need of the reward for walking in the path of Allah, and I'm stronger than you. So if I have to walk longer, it's not going to take much away from me. It's going to take away a lot more from you. So Rasulullah in another narration, he says that, um, another hadith, he says something to the effect that, you know, I make, something to the effect that I make tasbih and whatnot in the night, and my Rabb, he sustains me. Right, he sustains me. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala used to sustain the Prophet in a way that he didn't sustain the rest of the companions and in a way that he's not going to sustain the rest of us. That, because the Anbiya were the Anbiya. That was pretty straightforward, is there? No questions? The next name, inshallah, we have time for is Al-Hasib. So Hasib, 
This is like a very abstract name. There's so many different understandings and meanings for this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You can, and it kind of boils down to, this, to the same thing. It means the reckoner, the one who, who takes reckoning, or the measurer, the one who takes account. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, وَنَدَعُ الْمَوَازِينَ الْقِسْطَ لِيَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ فَلَا تُظْلَمُ نَفْسٌ شَيْئًا That we will place on the scales, we will place the scales for justice on the day of judgment, and nobody will be wronged. وَإِنْ كَانَ مِثْقَالَ حَبَّةٍ مِنْ, uh, مِنْ خَرْدَلٍ that we will place these scales for justice and nobody will be wronged. And even a mustard seed of good, even a mustard seed of good will be brought. So the smallest bit of good an individual did, that will be brought forth. And we are sufficient. We are sufficient as those who take account. That's why Rasulullah said that if the day of judgment is coming, if you see the day of judgment coming and you're about to plant a tree, plant the tree. Don't lose hope, plant it because it's a good deed. Right? Even at that moment, why? Because every single deed, it counts. Every single thing counts. Now, when going into the discussion of, of Hasib, uh, it's mentioned that the one who calls his servants to account for his deeds. So he takes account. Okay? But they go into a huge discussion about calculation. Right? Calculation. That think about... Um, think like if we want to be inspired by this name Al Hasib, then think about ourselves, think about the cosmos, think about everything. So some of the ulama mention uh, this isn't mentioned in Imam Ghazali's book, but some of the ulama they mentioned that what if you look at the human body, that there's approximately five million cells per cubic millimeter, okay, within the blood. Think about what type of computation would be necessary to make a body work, right? And th this amount is fixed according to the amount of blood we have, according to the degree of oxygen in, in the blood, right? So not just oxygen, but oxygen in the blood, the production of hormones and all the different things that are necessary. Imagine there's a specific amount of blood that's circulating in our body. And whatever comes upon us, maybe our, our body starts producing more blood, right? It, it, the flow increases, decreases. This is all a computation done by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not that he really needed to compute because he already knew, but we can't really, this is like so far beyond our comprehension that we have to bring these examples that are totally insufficient to describe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they also bring examples, the ulama bring examples of a camera, right? When we have a camera and we're trying to take a picture, if something is close or far away, we have to zoom in, we have to change it, we have to change the calculation. Sometimes, uh, it's not a matter of zooming in, it's just a matter of bringing something into focus. But then look at the eyes, right? So we have to come up with these calculations to make the camera work. Look at the eyes. When we're looking at something close or far, are we doing anything with our eyes to make it be able to see better? No, right? It's just our eyes take an automatic adjustment. It said what, like a, an eagle can see how far, like a mile or two miles or something? And we went to some sanctuary once and they said, they showed us a tree, I don't know, it was a mile away or something like that. They said that there's a newspaper on that tree and the eagle's eyes can see it. They can, it can read what's on the newspaper if it, if it could read. Does, does its eyes go under some type of adjustment? I mean, I guess in a sense, right, what happens, you see, like, if you guys have ever, when I was a kid, I used to turn the light on in the hallway and I used to look in the mirror and you know how sometimes the shadow comes in and I would just move my eyes in and out of the shadow to watch, your, to watch the people going bigger and smaller, right? What happens? When it's dark, your pupil gets bigger so that you can see the, what's, what's dark so that it can take in more light. So there's a little bit of computation that takes place, but not anything that we're thinking of. So could we say that, well, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had to compute this and figure this out? No, because he's the one that created the eye. The camera is based on the eye. So after observing the eye, people came up with the camera, right? They came up with the camera. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't, there was nothing, there was no eye or camera or anything in existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought this into existence based off of his knowledge. That's why we said when we discussed Alim, that Allah ta'ala's knowledge, uh, existence is based on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge, whereas our knowledge is based on existence, right? That first something comes into existence, then through our observation, we gain a knowledge about it. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had knowledge of a thing, and then it came into existence, right? So it's, it's opposite. But if we think about all the different computations necessary for our bodies to function and work, 
Then on top of that, the planets are spinning at how many, like how fast are the planets spinning? How fast are they moving in, in, in the directions that they're moving in? Then you have all the, the asteroids and the, the meteors and you have all the, the moons and you have all of these things happening. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala figured all of that out because he is Al-Hasib. Not that he figured it out, that's not the proper wording because he didn't need to figure anything out. Right? You, but you understand how it's difficult to explain this type of, this name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to be able to understand it. And if we think about on a, on a more micro level, uh, you know, you might, for example, one individual, he said to me, he was telling me that, sort of how he became religious, you know. And he said that he was in university, this was, he's like 33 or 34 now, so 15 years ago or something, I don't know. And uh, his roommate died in his arms. Okay, his roommate died in his arms. And he was, he was a mess. He was so like, he was just kind of distraught, right? Watching somebody die in your arms, it's, right? Especially like, I don't know, it, it seemed like it was probably uh, all of a sudden or something, right? So that's traumatizing, right? And he didn't know what to do. He drove around for a while, went to different places, totally lost. Winds up at a masjid. He just randomly goes into a masjid. It's empty. Nobody's there. There's one person that walks in, sits down, and it just happened to be some, it happened to be a sheikh. Okay? And he went to him and started talking to him And his whole life changed Because of this conversation with the sheikh And then he stayed in touch with him right? Think about what was necessary For that meeting to take place These two individuals are leading Two completely different lives They don't even know about each other For them to happen to come together In the same place at the same time At that exact moment that this individual Needed help This was by the divine decree and planning of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Right? Things don't usually happen by chance, right? They don't happen by chance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He enacts certain things to take place for our benefit or as a test to us. It's not by, cho- it's not by chance, you know? So like, uh, you know, people, one time somebody asked me, how did you get married? I think I was on that plane or something like that. And somebody asked me, how did you get married? How did you, you know? So I told them what happened. Like I was going, um, my, a friend of mine, he was trying to introduce our families, right? My wife's from Dallas, okay? And uh, they said that, so it was Ramadan. I used to come back from South Africa just in Ramadan, just for the month of Ramadan, okay? And then I would go back. So <laughs> I was here for about a week after Ramadan ended. Right at the end of Ramadan, uh, our parents got in touch, okay? My, my mom and her mom, my, my dad, her dad, they got in touch and they said, you know, it's, um, it'd be nice if we could, if the families could meet. But I was about to leave. I had to leave on a Friday uh, for my flight. And we said, yeah, that would have been nice, but there just isn't enough time. He said, yeah, okay, well, you know, we'll figure things out. We can, you know, maybe they can exchange emails or something while he's in South Africa because calling would have been difficult. So he said, okay, what happened then? Friday came and I, my visa was getting renewed. It didn't get renewed. It's just the embassy, like the, the South African consulate, they'll generally turn around your visa in like two days. For a whole month, they didn't renew my visa. They just, they sat on it. They're also like, it's not very organized, right? So there's delay sometimes. But uh, a whole month went by, five weeks went by, and they didn't get my visa back. So I had to change my flight. I couldn't fly out. So the, visa, the, the flight got changed. My mom calls my, my wife's mom and says, you know, he's actually here another week. So, you know, uh, maybe they can talk on the phone or something like that. So we had a, one phone conversation. It was on the following Tuesday. Our parents spoke over the weekend. We spoke on Tuesday on the phone. Then um, her dad calls and says, you know, um, why don't we meet? So it's Wednesday. He said, why don't we meet? And uh, my parents are like, yeah, that's great, except he has to leave on Friday. So there's not enough time. He goes, no, no, there's plenty of time. We have all of Thursday. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) So they say, okay, that's great, but, you know, we can't really come out there because if we fly out, I have to fly out on Friday. What am I going to do? Fly in Friday morning to Seattle and then fly out Friday afternoon? Like, that's cutting it too close. It's going to be too hectic. So anyway, they ended up coming to Seattle and, you know, our families met, you know, so on and so forth. We eventually got married. So when you tell an individual this, their response, like when I told somebody this, their response was, oh, you know, it's just by chance. The world was just trying to put you guys together. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it that way. He knew that what was going to happen. He knew what needed to be done. And then when it comes to how did we, our families had no contact with each other, no idea who we were, right? What happened? I happened to go to South Africa and I picked a particular school that another friend of mine was in, right? Who we didn't know each other at the time. We weren't friends. I got sick and I went back to, I went to Chicago for a few months, right? I transferred to a school in Chicago for a few months. 
uh, and it wasn't like I, was, I went there because I was sick. During my time there, this, this other friend of mine, that's when we became good friends. Then because of my few months there before I went back to South Africa, that's what allowed him that after he got married, told his wife that, oh, I have a friend if you have any friends. Had I not gotten sick in South Africa, I wouldn't have come to Chicago. Our friendship wouldn't have grown. Then what? Our families would never have come into contact, right? Now we think this is all by chance. No, this is by the divine decree and calculation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? He orders all of these things. So many variables can take, so many variables are there. And Allah Ta'ala is the only one that is able to bring all of these, despite all the different variables, bring our lives together. So that we just happen to be at the right place at the right time. That goodness comes to us. That's Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's doing, right? And we're tested also. So He also brings these things together so that we get tested. And through one particular incident and action, or one event, so many lives will be tested. I'm not talking about some major event, right? Some major event where like the whole world is affected by it. But something small happens on a micro level in the community or something like that. And so many different lives are affected in so many different ways that different people are able to come together, or a different job is lined up, or a different school gets lined up, or whatever it might be. Whatever it might be. This is through the divine calculation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, Inna Allah kana ala kulli shayin hasib. That indeed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, is sufficient for everything. So hasib means the one who takes account, it also means the one who is sufficient. That's why we say what? Hasbi Allahu wa ni'mal wakil. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for me. On the day of judgment, what's going to happen? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will weigh our deeds. Right? He's going to weigh our deeds. So when He weighs our deeds, Right? Then what? Like he mentioned, we mentioned in the verse that he places the scales. He weighs our deeds. Our deeds are not counted. Our deeds are weighed. Our deeds are weighed. That means the quality of our actions, not the quantity of our actions. So we have to improve the quality of our actions, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is able to count all of that. Okay? Secondly, if we take the meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient, this is what gives birth to tawakkul in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, having trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, الَّذِينَ قَالَ لَهُمُ النَّاسِ That when, the, uh, when it is said to them, uh, that when the people say to them, those who when the people say to them, إِنَّ النَّاسَ قَدْ جَمَعُوا لَكُمْ That indeed all of the people have gathered against you. فَخْشَوْهُمْ Then fear them. فَزَادَهُمْ imana. That what? It's, t- it's told to certain individuals. You know the whole world has, has gathered against you. So you should fear them. Be afraid. Right? Fear them. فَزَادَهُمْ imana. What does it do? It only increases those individuals in iman. وَقَالُوا And they say, حَسْبُنَ اللَّهُ وَنِعْمَ الْوَكِيلُ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for us and what a fine trustee He is. Isn't this our state right now? I don't know about you guys. People tell me all the time that, oh, you be afraid now. You know, people are against Islam, against Muslims. Somebody recently told me that, you know, uh, uh, ISIS put out, I don't know, they tweeted or something. That's still weird to me that they tweet. But <laughs> they tweeted that... Uh, you know, they're going to target imams in America or ulama in America who talk about um, how as Muslims we can thrive in America, right? How it's not a bad place for us to be, how we can, it's okay for us to be here and, you know, how we can function in society. They're going to target those people. So don't say anything publicly about this type of thing. Why not? This is our, isn't this our responsibility? If we cannot try and bring the people hope, then what's the point? What's the point of doing anything we do for this, for, for like, you know, if we can't try to bring hope to people, then basically it kills our actions, right? As people who are trying to make khidmah of deen, who are trying to you know, help the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, increase ourselves in iman, you know, trying to help others, if we can't bring them hope, then what's the point, right? So what? Rather we say, no, forget them 10,000 miles away, whatever, right? If they don't understand this, that's their problem, <laughs> you know? But what? Hasbunallahu wa ni'mal wakil. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for us. So Allah Ta'ala is hasib, meaning He takes to account, He takes measure of everything, and He is the one who is sufficient. And there's huge discussions about, I mean, it's actually a very lengthy discussion about hasib. Uh, in short, Imam Uzzali, he says that the religious fruit from this, from hasib, for a man is that Allah alone suffices for him in connection with his intention and his will, so that he wants only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, he should want paradise. He should want Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala rather than uh, uh, wanting paradise. He should stay away from evil in order to please Allah, not not to stay away from the the fire. 
And if Allah reveals himself in his majesty, then this individual should say that this is sufficient for me, for I do not want anything other than him, nor do I care whether something other than him escapes me or not. Right, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being um, hasib, being sufficient, he also brings, Imam Uzayi brings the discussion about like, to say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for you, what does that mean? That we shouldn't have this, you know, uh, this goofy Sufi understanding. Okay, of like Allah Ta'ala is sufficient for me, meaning I don't have to seek the means. For us to seeking a livelihood and seeking food and sustenance, this does not mean that we are putting our trust in something else. This doesn't mean that we're saying that no, I need something else to suffice me other than Allah. Because Allah is the one that created all this. So the example he gives is that of a mother and a child. That uh, if you say, if you say to an individual that the mother is sufficient for her infant. Right? For sustenance. Because the child is only having milk. So if you say a mother is sufficient for her child, it would be ridiculous, it would be stupidity for someone to argue and say, well, no, it's not the mother, it's actually the milk of the mother. That would be ridiculous, right? Why? Because the milk is from the mother, right? And furthermore, the milk and the mother is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So just as saying, just as saying that uh, the mother is sufficient, right? And, that, and leaving out that, no, the milk is what's sufficing the child, that's not contradictory. Similarly, it's not contradictory to seek food and livelihood and it's not contradictory to being, to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being sufficient for us or for us to think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sufficient for us. Because we have to understand the means that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has, has put in this world and the nidham, the, the style, the method that he has made for, for us in this world. It's very actually a lengthy discussion, interesting discussion, but we just don't you know, have time for it. And he kind of goes off into the, all the different calculations and whatnot of all these different things. So, inshallah, this is also sufficient. Any questions? Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, like um, when you talk about how someone, for example, a young Muslim can be, I mean, can convert to some of the experiences of like, yeah, events that can make them, like, or like the story you gave, like yeah. you met a shaykh and all that. Why? I mean, is do you think the chances are a lot, or is it like only the chosen ones? Kind of like, I don't know. It's like no. Why does it happen for some and not for others? Yeah. So you know, sometimes <clears throat> it's it's not because Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is just. He's not going to. You know, he's not going to prevent somebody from being guided, right? He's not going to prevent them from that. So Imam Ghazali, he mentions, or in the books of Aqidah, it's mentioned that Allah Ta'ala doesn't allow someone to be misguided until they want to seek that path, right? And there's different things that would cause our guidance, right? So the example that I gave, that was something that was sufficient for that individual. It might not be sufficient for another individual, right? So when we're trying to look at these different situations, we might see it happening for this person. If it doesn't happen for another person, that doesn't mean, like the same event, if it doesn't happen for another person, it doesn't mean that no, Allah Ta'ala didn't provide the ability or the, pos the possibility for the other person, right, for person B. Maybe that's, that wouldn't have worked for person B anyway. Allah Ta'ala rather put something that would have worked for that individual, right? So it's just like us, like, you know, sometimes we read a verse of Quran and it's very profound, it's very profound to me, but it doesn't provide the same amount, it doesn't provide the same, um, it doesn't give the same type of uh, meaning or it doesn't drive home the same way with another individual. But another verse might drive home better with another individual and not with me, right? It's because our minds work differently and so on and so forth. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, he gives these, you know, He always provides the path, right? He always provides that path. And it's also, you know, for us to not think ourselves that in these situations that we achieved it on our own. Right, so oh, I was guided because I did such a good, you know, such and such good thing. You know, probably like, you know, oftentimes what might have happened is we actually, you know, mistreated somebody who was just pious, and that person made du'a for us. Right, Allah accepted that du'a. Right, and the Prophet saw some, you know, so when we, I mean, these are kind of discussions regarding the fate, taqdeer, and all that. So the Prophet saw some taqdeer is there, right? But the Prophet also has said that taqdeer, fate can change by du'a. That supplication can change what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed. Allah ta'ala will change. Now that doesn't mean Allah ta'ala is like, oh, now he made du'a. It's sort of there to give us hope, right? 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, like for example, when the, you know, after the battle of Badr, right, the Muslims took prisoners. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wasn't pleased with that. So what he rebukes Rasulullah and he says that, look, had a previous, that the, the, there was, the punishment was coming to you for having done this thing, for taking prisoners, right? Had the decree, had a previous decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not already been in place, that punishment would have afflicted you. Okay? So, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's decree overpowered that other thing. It's, I mean, it's kind of like cause and effect, right? So you do one thing and that causes the, in the, within the cosmos and the realm of all this like spirituality and something, it causes something else to take place. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sometimes blocks that or you make dua and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes that to change what was coming towards you, right? We shouldn't think, I mean, taqdeer is a very complex subject. We shouldn't think that these things are all working independently of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And now he's got to like try and control all of it, right? That's like, that's how we would have to do things. You know what I mean? But um, it's not that a person is chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that, you know, I have guide, I'm going to guide this person and I'm not going to guide this person. If that was the case, then Allah ta'ala wouldn't punish the person that he's not going to guide, right? Um, and so... He allows these pathways to open up, and that's why you see amongst the amongst the in the Quran, when you look at the Anbiya, the Anbiya are always uh, humbling themselves before Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. This is a point I wanted to mention last week. Also, somebody asked about uh, how do we humble ourselves. The Anbiya throughout the Quran are are quoted as always attributing goodness to Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So Ibrahim Alaihissalam, he was a prophet, right? Prophets hold the highest level of they hold the highest level amongst creation, status-wise. And yet he would still make dua to Allah that, Oh Allah, guide me and you know, keep me guided. Make me, you know, make me the leader of the muttaqeen. Right? Um, that they would always say that, Oh Allah, whatever goodness, whatever good I have said, it is from you. Or whatever goodness has come to me, it is from you. And whatever incorrect or bad things I have said, this is from my own side. This is from my own shortcomings. So this is a way that we humble ourselves. That's kind of a different discussion from your question, but you know, it's more for last week. Yeah. So uh, based on my knowledge, uh, every human being, every every non-Muslim is shown the right path in Islam, either in this life, and if not in this life, they're shown the right path in the afterlife. So they have the choice of you know if they're willing to choose the right path or not. So is it false to say that if like non-Muslims will go to like hell? So that was that's like the discussions of Aqidah, right? There are those. There are those who might not uh, ever be shown the correct path, right? So this is where there's two, there's two uh, schools of thought in this when it comes to aqidah. The Ash'aris and the Maturidis. So the Ash'aris, they say that a person has to receive the correct message of Islam in its true form, right? And so that is, if that takes place and they reject it, then they're accountable. The Maturidis say, no, you should have been able to understand by your own intellect that there's one God, that there's one supreme being. The rest of the details, you're not accountable for because, you know, unless it was taught to you or told to you, right? So like, if a person, the Maturidi say that if a person was, he lived his entire life in the jungle, hypothetically speaking, his entire life he lived in the jungle, never met another individual in his whole life, he could still, by his intellect, arrive at the conclusion that there's one supreme being. So he'd be accountable for having at least that amount of belief. The rest of it, who the Prophet is, Salah, Haram, Halal, that he's, not, he's excused from because there was no one there to tell that to him, right? Um, so those are the two different schools of thought for, the, uh, for, for Aqidah. Some of the ulama have said that those individuals, so now the, the, the Ash'aris, they say the person who doesn't receive the uh, message of Islam, then they are excused. Some have said that after they die, then on the day of judgment or in their grave, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will present them with the truth. And at that moment, they choose. And if they choose to believe in the Prophet and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then they're saved. And if at that point they reject, then it's a rejection. Right? Now that's matters of the grave, Allahu Alam, you know. Nobody from the grave came back to tell us that, you know. As far as I know, even like those that came back from, you know, that Isa Islam brought back to life, like they were shocked, they thought it was the day of judgment. They weren't. And those were believers also, right, to begin with. So um, yeah, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't he doesn't take to account unless the means for their salvation was there. If the means of salvation was not there, he won't take to account because that is justice and it wouldn't be just any other way. Right? Yeah. Okay, I don't know how to put this correctly, but I'll try and say it. So, in 
actions, they can be good and bad and say that you know, if it's good then it's all that So our, our belief, as far like this comes in the Hadith of Jibril, that uh, we believe in good and bad to all be created from Allah, right? It's not like good versus evil, right? That they're, the two are competing against each other. Allah Ta'ala creates all of these things. And we choose which path we want to take. Do we want to do what's good or do we want to do what's bad? Okay. As far as the saying of the ulama that when, you know, whatever good I've said or done, this is from Allah and whatever bad or whatever I've accomplished is from Allah and whatever bad has come to me, that's from my own self shortcoming. This is a way of humbling ourselves. No, Allah Ta'ala still created the bad, right? He still created that there. And that's created as a test for us that are we going to go down that path or not, right? So like what's the benefit of swine, for example, right? Pig, like, I don't know, maybe there's some benefit, like, you know, rats and stuff, they'll still eat disease and, you know, whatever, right? So maybe there's some benefit to a pig or something like that, right? But there, it's, it's, at the least, it's there as a test for us. Allah created that also, right? He created alcohol also. Why? It's, it's a test for us. It's not allowed. Are you going to listen or are you not going to listen? So Allah Ta'ala allows, He creates the evil also, and we choose which one we want to do, good or bad. So we are the ones who make the decision of doing good or doing bad. And Allah Ta'ala then He allows that to come into place. So He creates, he creates the evil and He creates us acting on it. What is he, what, what's, what's meant by Him creating our action is that our action is not independent of the will of Allah. Not meaning that He forces us to do it. But once we choose to do it because He's given us a free will, then He allows it to take place. And there's plenty of times that Allah Ta'ala stops us from it also, right? But um, yeah, he creates the evil, he creates the good, and he creates the action, right? And so this was, a, this was, a, this was problematic because the Mu'tazila, they said, no, you can't say that evil is created from Allah, right? You can't say that because you can't, that's kind of attributing deficiency to him. It's not attributing deficiency to him. Defi deficiency is saying that he didn't create evil because by saying, no, Allah Ta'ala didn't create evil means that it exists by itself and that when evil or bad takes place, then it takes place and overpowers Allah. So that's where the deficiency is. Right? And that's problematic with our iman. So he creates both. We choose which one we want to take. Once we make the decision, Allah Ta'ala allows it to take place. Right? Yeah. Is it true that if a person sincerely wants to, or um, sincerely is in like, the search of guidance, that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala would like, guide that person? Yeah, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, somebody who's sincere, right? Allah Ta'ala says, I believe it's, I can't think of the, I think there's a verse of Quran also, right? That Allah Ta'ala will, He will guide those individuals, right? They want to be guided. So He'll open that, He will make that opening for them, right? It might take them a long time to search for it or whatnot. If they were to never find it, okay, they never found it, you know? That means Allah Ta'ala at least didn't want bad for them, right? He at least protected them from the evil because He didn't allow that to, you know, He didn't allow them to, like, because they didn't find it, they're not going to be taken into account. But it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He says that He wishes good for us Right? He wishes good for us But this world is created as a test right. you have a follow up question to that? No? <laughs> you can see the wheels are turning Yeah You know, Allah Ta'ala, we've mentioned uh, several times the hadith that uh, Allah Ta'ala says that I am as my slave thinks of me. Okay, so you should always have hope in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, always have a good opinion of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. Because if you view Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala to like have it out for you, He'll take you to account, He'll seize you for that then, right? But um, have good hope in Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. And as long as you are doing, you are living a life of obedience to Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, then you know that everything that comes upon you, even if it's some difficulty, that it's just a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I'm obedient to Him, so it's a test from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He will make a path out for me. And He says it in the Qur'an, right? He says that He will make, <clears throat> for those that are, in Surah At-Tulaq, He says that, that those who are God-fearing, those who have taqwa, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make a way out for them. 
right, from a, from a source that they could not have perceived. You know, so when difficulty comes upon us, then we have to, uh, that's when we trust in Allah that, no, you know, this is, he has some purpose for allowing this difficulty to come upon me, and I still have to be obedient to Allah. That doesn't mean, tawakkul doesn't mean we don't seek the means, right? So that means like in school, for example, you have to put in your effort, right? You have to put in your effort, you have to, right, do your assignments, go to class, take your tests, like exert your effort. Don't just think, uh, and Imam Ghazali mentions this in previous chapters, that it would be foolish to say, well, Allah Ta'ala is going to give me what He's going to give me anyway, so I'm just going to sit back and not do anything. Chances are, Allah Ta'ala didn't mean for you to have that thing, and so now you've sat back, and you've deceived yourself into thinking that, oh, Allah Ta'ala just didn't want to give it to me, you know, and whatever He, you know. So, having tawakkul means that we take, the, we, we, we exert the effort and seek the means, and then have the good opinion of Allah Ta'ala that whatever comes before us, then that will be good, right? That that is what is best for us. It doesn't mean that Allah Ta'ala is forced to only do what's best for us, right? It means that there's a difference. Thinking that Allah Ta'ala is, it's incumbent upon Him to do what's best for us versus thinking that whatever has happened was better for me because there could have always been something worse, right? There's a difference in these two things, you know? So but it, it starts with having being obedient to Allah and then having a good opinion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? We shouldn't think that, oh, why is this happening to me? And, you know, I'm so good and this and that. First of all, maybe we did something to displease Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But, I mean, he puts it, those that are most beloved to him go through more difficult tests, right? They, it's, they, have a, they live a harder life, you know? And that's established with the sunnah of Rasulullah Does that answer your question? I have one last question. Yeah. It's not related to I've heard the 15th of Rajab is considered one of the most important days for Muslims, or like it's considered like a lost favorite day or something. Like, <laughs> Do you have a name for that day? No, I don't. Okay. I it's interesting know. hearing what names people have. No, there's um, so we're in the month of Rajab now, and there's uh, there's no particular night of extra fadila, extra virtue for the month of Rajab. Uh, somebody told me recently, they asked me about Laylatul Raghaib, which is like the first Thursday night, which is Friday, right, of, of Rajab, that whatever nafuz and this and that should be done. There's no, there's no basis for those things. Um, we do that in Turkey. Oh, really? It's like celebrated more like, the whole country celebrates Laylatul Raghaib. Oh, yeah? Yeah. That's what I was like, yeah, there's like a lot of like these days where like it's celebrated, but I'm not sure like exactly where it comes from. Yeah. They say like there's like Hanif, like Hanif, like Hanif. There's, there's one hadith by Imam Razin, I think, in his book um, about this Laylatul Raghaib, the first Friday night of, uh, of Rajab. But it's, the muhaddithin have deemed it to be like extremely weak. I'm not sure if they've put it to the level of fabrication, but they've based it on, they've put it to extremely weak. Um, we, don't find, we don't find that the Prophet did anything specific that night and extra. I mean, he used to do like Tajjid and all that stuff every night, right? And there were certain nights that he would do extra. So like the 27th of Rajab also, right? People will say, oh, Laylatul Miraj. First of all, we don't know if that was the night of Miraj. And even if it was, there's nothing extra that should be done specifically for that night. If you want to make the Hajjid, make the Hajjid. But don't do it because, oh, it's Laylatul Miraj. And so there's extra reward for doing the Hajjid in this night as opposed to the Hajjid in another night, right? Or extra thicker or Quran. Whatever you feel like I should do tahajjud or something, do it, <laughs> right? Or extra thick or something like that. Uh, you, there's Laylatul Qadr and there's the, the 15th of Sha'ban. So the 15th of Sha'ban is the, is the night, uh, Laylatul Bara, which there's extra virtue in it. Um, and yes, there are, there are, there are hadith, there's a lot of hadith on it. So one of the things when it comes to hadith um, is that if there isn't, if they're not entirely sahih, that doesn't mean they're weak or fabricated either, okay? But if they are, don't reach the highest level of authenticity, practices that come from those hadith carry weight or are increased in weight when there's a whole lot of them, understand? So if you have one hadith and it might be slightly weak, right? Or like, when you say slightly weak, you should, people start thinking fabrication. Da'if doesn't mean fabrication. Uh, but it might not be sahih, for example, right? Okay, it's one hadith that says like 15th night of Shaban, do something extra, okay? And it might not carry much weight, but when you get a second hadith, all of a sudden the weight increases. And two hadith might not be enough. But when you have like 10, 15, 20, 30 hadith all speaking about this, that night, the gathering of all these different narrations 
will give weight to the practice. Okay? So the 15th of Sha'ban is a night that um, the companions of the Prophet and the, the ulama after them always had a practice of engaging in extra ibadah that night and fasting on its day. Right? It's not a requirement, but that's the one night outside of like Layatul Qadr. And the nights of Eid also those have those are established of extra ibadah and stuff like that. Right? Well like even if it wasn't or even if it was like a week of Eid, like wouldn't it still be a good thing to like practice more or like I guess do more ibadah on that day, let's say? Even if it's like not considered true, it's like it's still an excuse for you to do more ibadah. Right, but you so whatever gets you to do extra ibadah, as long as you don't Think, consider it to be like that virtue to be part of the deen, right? Because then it becomes innovation, right? So if something's going to get you to, to do extra ibadah, that's fine. But if you consider a particular night, like, no, the Prophet did something specific in this night, and there's extra virtue for this night, when there isn't, that's problematic because that's innovation. That's bid'ah then, right? Um, now, when it comes to weak hadith, you can't establish a ruling based on weak hadith. But you can narrate weak hadith to give the virtue of something, right? So we all know tahajjud is good. If there's a weak hadith that talks about some particular virtue out of tahajjud, you can share that. You're not establishing the strength of tahajjud based on that hadith or the importance of tahajjud based on that hadith. You're just giving like an added virtue to it. You know what I mean? So you understand there's a slight difference. But the 15th of Shaban, my teacher actually wrote like a, I think a nine-page article or something like that. Um, or it's a few articles, like Q and answer, question and answer, about the 15th of Shaban. But um, yeah, basically outside of Ramadan and Laylatul Qadr, the nights of Eid, and the 15th of Shaban, there isn't anything more particular, right? Some ulama have said Laylatul Qadr happens twice in a year, once in Ramadan, once out of Ramadan. But we don't know which night that is, not in Ramadan or out of Ramadan. So some of the ulama have said, I found the night, you know, in a particular year. Okay, through their experience, maybe they found it, right? Certain things happened that night, maybe you experienced it. It doesn't mean, but they didn't like necessarily share what night that was, right? And it changes. They say that if it happens outside of Ramadan, it changes also. So like, search for it, you know? So that shouldn't... So we just spend every day like it's like... Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. But no, for Rajab, there isn't anything specific. Um, a lot of people have issues with the 15th of Shaban, but there's so many hadith, even though they're not sahid, but there's so many hadith that it gives strength. It gives a lot of strength to it. <laughs> because people will say like 